Well, how are you, Aidy? I'm very well. How are you? I'm I'm very good. Yes, I um I've been um I I got a parcel today containing copies of my new novel. Oh, and, so delicious, though, isn't and, it? And I haven't opened it yet because perhaps slightly pathetically, I think I might be able to film myself doing a, an unboxing. I think you uh, should. But my technical skills are so way beyond that. Um, so um, I, I'm going to give it a go. So so they're sitting there at the other side of the room looking at me and I cannot wait to pat them, open them up and pat them. But, I think you uh, should, yeah. Uh, um, I so will exciting. not. I will. I will not do it until I've at least given it. Uh, given it my best. My editor says she'd love to put it on the socials. So on the socials. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, so Mo, I've, I've got to ask you a question before we work out who launches in. How dark is your subject matter today? Because I've brought something a bit weighty. Um, no, mine mine isn't mine isn't particular. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about distraction. Oh, yeah, good one. Um, and how um, I'm I, and my sort of I sometimes make lists. Uh, I I make lists to stop myself getting distracted, and then the making of the list itself becomes a distraction. And I yeah, realize somewhat I'm pretty pretty well done in illuminating yeah. the script list. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It can be. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a list can be a way to almost forgive yourself for distraction as well, because you know that you've been out of control with something. But if you then make a list, you're back in control, and that cancels out the fact that you. Also, also, and this is this is this is one of the ones where I say to myself, um, I need to get the balance right between being creative, which means a distraction's a good thing. Yeah. Let me run down this alley now, because I want to write another novel next year. Yeah. Yes. And it may be that there is stuff in here that in this distraction, whatever, there's that. Uh, but then there is distractions, ugly sister prevarication. Right. <laughs> Who, you know, if distraction can be enticing and could be creative. Yeah, anyway, so that's what I was thinking about talking about. So if you're going to go dark, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to go to, to go. Um, we can be. We can be the um, the Vianetta of podcasts. A little bit dark, a little bit light. A little. I bit think dark. I should go first, go so that we leave people with something not completely crushing and terrifying. Okay, well, let's start with the crushing and terrifying. Yeah, well, it, well, it is and it's not. So, so I, I'm going to because, as you know, I'm a, I'm a true crime. I think fanatic's probably a strong word, but. Uh, I'm into it, and and I consume a lot of that content. And and the trial that's going on at the moment is Lucy Letby, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with who that is. No, tell me the story. Tell me the story. Good. Okay. Well, well, I'm, what I'm not going to do actually is go into the car crash gory details because there are other podcasts out there that have done that, and that's not what yeah. this forum is. Yeah. So what I what I'm really going to do is I'm going to use the case of Lucy Letby to talk about a list of other things okay. that I've got. Yeah. Um, because this case and hearing about it stirred up a lot of questions for me, a lot of moral dilemmas, which is what mm. we tend to bring a fair Love amount a moral of. Dilemma. Exactly. And some questions about the, the various lenses through which we see things. Yeah. So for everyone not aware, Lucy Letby is currently on trial. The jury has retired. We're awaiting the verdict for murdering 
a fairly large number of neonatal right premature babies right and and having harmed quite a few more mm. so the the babies not all the babies she's allegedly attacked have died some of them have lived some of them have complications she was a neonatal nurse operating um in a hospital in chester i believe called the countess so but there are podcasts out there that will go into the details of each yeah. baby and what, what all has gone on, right? So so off the top of my head, there's one by the Daily Mail, which has been largely based on the actual trial and the court proceedings. Right. So you can go and hear the ins and outs of the prosecution and the defence, if that's what you want. There's another good one called Trusting Evil, which uh, goes into, in a sympathetic way, the details of the babies. And then last podcasts on the left as well has, has covered the case and what's actually happened to the children. So if you want to hear about that, go to those places. You're not going to get that from us here. What Lucy Letby has brought up for me, uh, and I've actually made a list, which is not like me for this. I usually yeah. kind of just free do it, but there's quite a lot here to talk about. And, and it goes down some different avenues. So I'm going to have to ask you to stick with me and we might yeah, yeah. just have to be a bit systematic about how we go through it. So one of them, the, the difference between actual guilt and legal guilt. Right. And then also the question of trust. Mm. It brought up for me questions around the risks that we take. Yeah. Um, for for example, the hospital not wanting to take her off the ward, even though they had suspicions that something was going on. But we'll get into that into more detail. Um, I, I, and then largely the the big one, the big one, it, it's a question for me of are we ever truly safe, or is that a lie that we tell ourselves? Mm. Oh, oh, oh! I think that's a very interesting question. So it's, a, it's an interesting one, right? So, so if we go back to the top of the list, so for me, it's actual guilt versus legal guilt, uh, and this presented me with a real difficult moral question because I have looked at the case and it's not what you call a smoking gun case. Mm. So we don't ever have, you know, Lucy with a baby in one hand and a baseball bat in the other. Yeah. Right. It's just uh, lots of horrible things happen and Lucy is kind of there. Mm. Lucy is also quite weird. So mm. that's another one, right? Because we, in the press particularly, have a history of assuming the guilt of people that are odd. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that's not always true. You know, the girl, the girl, poor girl years ago now was discovered, I think, on like Boxing Day or Christmas Day. And they really went after the landlord because he was incredibly strange and it turned yeah. out it wasn't him. Anyway, so Lucy's weird. Lucy's around with the baby death. Lucy goes away on holiday and kids stop dying. Mm. And look, I, I've looked at the case and I, th- I think she probably did do it. I think mm. she probably did. But there's a, a problem for me with it, because if I were in the jury legally if Mm. we're going on the i don't know if this is just an american thing but the reasonable doubt concept right which i think we might not call it the same here but it's more or less the same thing right is you have to be damn sure yeah i don't know if i could come back with a guilty verdict on this one see this is this is one of those many things which the scots do better right because they have a non not proven and okay I think it's quite right that the standard of proof has to be very high. Yeah. But I think it's, what, 8% of rapes are successfully prosecuted? Gosh. And for the reason for that is, is lack of evidence. Yeah. Because to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt, you have to prove in that case that there wasn't consent. So you've got two, You ha- in, in most rape cases, you get two contrasting scripts 
to the discussion that was had in the evening. And there's no evidence most rapes don't take place under a CCT camp, UV camp, uh, or in front of the You're not going to do party. it in the middle of the library, are you? It's just, no. it's just not how it's going to go. Um, no, exactly. And that's a bit like this case as well, because we have, I mean, we have a note from her kind of half confessing, but then of course the defence does something with that and said she was just mm. very stressed out because she's been arrested. Um, you know, we have quite strange behaviour around all the parents. We have her just, I mean, she crops up a great deal in the, in these instances and she's just always around basically when, when things are going wrong with these babies. But then at the same time, we have things with the hospital where a couple of the infants weren't given antibiotics when they should yeah. have been. And there was over, like not over, understaffing, you know, too, too many yeah. patients per nurse ratio. And, and there were other kind of failures of care that mean for me even though I look at it and I go I think you probably killed the babies because you're deeply I don't think she's a psychopath I think she's deeply unwell but if you are talking about taking away someone's liberty forever I don't know if I could decisively come down on that so has she come up up with any reason I mean I could imagine someone saying that for example a very 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 um premature baby that might not be able to live and grow to a healthy life uh, you know someone could make a case i would well, definitely not be one of the people that right well, well she's pleading not guilty of course yeah. and and the defense largely is around the fact that these are just such high-risk babies yeah they are such high-risk babies um i think the rate at which they were dying and it was quite a concentrated period when this was happening the rate at which these things were happening was way beyond what was expected yeah and then once Lucy Letby is taken off of the ward, she was a night shift nurse and she's put onto day shifts, mm. the, the death rate then immediately yeah. comes back to kind of where, not, it sounds awkward to say where you would expect, but what's yeah. normal or mm. very, I mean, I think one of them weighed a pound. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're yeah. just so small, Yes, you know, um, and, and the way that in which she was allegedly doing this is quite consistent. So introducing air into the baby's called an air embolism. And also a couple of them with insulin and also overfeeding because the, the the amounts that they feed these tiny babies, I mean, it's like millily, it's such tiny, tiny amounts because mm. the stomachs aren't set up to cope with it. So if you overfeed them, it's quite simple to kill mm. a baby in that way, you know, because they don't cope particularly well. I mean, some of them do pull through. So, I mean, they're tough little things. But yeah, that's what, what I wanted to talk to you about. And how you would then deal with that? What does that then, What where is the duty because this is what's difficult for a jury right so you have a duty of justice for the murdered and attacked children but you also have a duty of justice for the person that's being accused yeah because if she is just a really crap nurse Mm. and hasn't killed anybody well well, who takes priority really there's another question to ask here which is about the systems because if she yes. is, let's say she is either a menace, uh, a criminal menace, or a terrible nurse. Yeah. Um, why wasn't it spotted? It was. It was. The hospital didn't wish to take her off the ward. Yeah, well, then, so that's, so then we're talking about who's culpable. And right. So she's talking about different forms of guilt. Yes. Yeah. Um, and who who gets to hold what type of guilt and, and she gets to hold a criminal guilt but is there a systemic guilt as well i don't know oh, but, but, it could, but could that be argued that that's also criminal guilt because people were dying so and that's one of the things that the defense 
has drawn upon because there were I think a couple of doctors who had whistleblown this or tried to talk to people tried to have her removed and there was one account of a doctor and I can't remember his name who had left a ward and then realized that she was alone with a baby and just had such a gut feeling mm. that said I just have to go back and he was trying to tell himself no I'm being paranoid I'm being paranoid yeah. but it just stuck in his head like Lucy's on her own with that kid and I think there was an incident with the child mm. who went back and she was by the cot and then you know something wasn't okay um but yeah the, the hospital was reluctant to remove her I think on a couple of levels because they've, they've got not enough warm bodies for yeah. one and also then the reputational damage that comes yeah. with that, which now can't be undone. I mean, who wants to have a baby at that hospital ever again, yeah. even yeah. though she's not there now, right? Yeah. So there's there's that. Um, so part of the defence's defence is, well, why didn't you call the police? Yeah. But, but they didn't. Um, no. I mean, so, yeah. okay, okay, so partly there's an element of the unthinkable. Yes. And I think we, as humans, we can go into a, a real specific kind of denial, right? When you're just like, that is so unfathomable to, yeah. unfathomable to me that I'm just going to reject it. And then the other thing, the other thing, and this is this is the sort of socio-political thing, really, is um, do we have a system that is working so far beyond stretch that um, the people within it are not capable of using their normal faculties yes. in the way that they normally would. Yeah. So you haven't had enough sleep, or you know that if you get rid of this nurse, there won't be a replacement, or right. whatever it might be. Right. So, so, um, and this is where then you 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 compromise. And um, I mean, I personally believe that there's an argument to be made here about healthcare, and I know this sounds absolutely brutal. Yeah. But, and if it was my baby, I would kill to keep that baby given all the care that possibly could be given. Sure. Yeah? But, you know, we have far more very small babies surviving, which is great, because otherwise you've got a grieving family. Yeah. But that means we haven't, it, it's, it strikes me that, that this is exactly the kind of thing that we didn't predict. So if we say, for example, um, Let's do lots of research on how to keep very um, early early born babies alive. At the same time, you should say, let's also train a lot more nurses and doctors to be able to work with them. Right, because you do because have to otherwise, be qualified. Otherwise, yeah. you've got, and I, I, I would liken it in a way to those sort of, you know, everyone's saying that the, the, the way forward with cancer is uh, individualised chemo if if the system can afford it can right. the system afford to analyze uh you know the particular illness that a person has develop a particular treatment for them? you know that's possible but is it possible in a, an economic it's only sense? possible in a privatized context at the moment i would suggest yeah until of course technology comes along and like you say you know yes. we have a lot more babies surviving and i imagine that there will be more technology and more um, advancements which will mean that it's easier yeah. to do this and lower risk to do this I, I think that you make a good point about um, the systemic pressures because we have healthcare operating on a system which is still largely Victorian yeah. right with this concept of a 12-hour shift I mean is it any con 
is it any surprise that people are leaving the profession in droves because the wages are low and you're working for half a day and like you say at the end of a 12-hour shift which may well extend if there's an emergency because you're not just going to down tools in the middle of something be like well that's me good luck so you might then be 13 14 hours whatever they've got to write Mm. their notes as well are you using your best reason yeah and and in that manner are you willing to be one person down yeah off of a hunch when actually you just need that and that's what that's my point about risk I think I think that's like where was the toilet because obviously the risk wasn't worth it because a bunch of babies lost their lives and and a couple more have got last I mean one's permanently disabled will not have a good life now as a result of what happened but then but then you see I've got a couple of friends I've spoken to about this in the last couple of years who are currently both ex-midwives right and um they described the pressure in the system yeah. in various ways. But one of the things they also said is um, when they trained, and they're neither of them old, when they trained, it was accepted that some babies will die and very occasionally a mother will die. That is part yeah. of what happens. And that happens because situations can change very quickly and things can just go wrong. It does, yeah, right. It's a precarious. Uh, We're not particularly efficient at reproducing as a species. No. Well, we've we've made this compromise, haven't we, to get this big brain, right? Um, and what we've done is we've made it extremely difficult to get this big brain out of our right. Of right. Our, our pelvis. And in fact, yeah. we did two things that were wrong. We developed this huge brain, and we walked upright. Um, if we were still on all fours. We yeah. our, our birth canal would be tilted backwards and we would pop them out much more easily. Because the conversion to being bipeds hasn't been all that successful, has it, as we can see by the um, plethora of lower back problems. Uh, yeah, and, and the structure of the skeleton and, and the yeah, hips, yeah. Yeah, I mean... But, and knees. But, but both, both of these um, people that I know who had been midwives had said that one of the things that they, they found difficult to cope with was that there is a declining... Um, and this is a social thing, a declining admission that sometimes things go wrong, shit happens, people die, yeah? Yeah. And sometimes it's because the whole system is absolutely wrong, and sometimes it's just because there's a catastrophe. Yeah? Sure. And, but and I think, though, this it's different, though, when this catastrophe has been introduced by a human. Oh, absolutely. Because this hospital wasn't expecting for no babies to die, it's just that we suddenly had, like, this was on the daily all yeah, of a sudden, but, you know. But, I, but what I'm saying is, I think when we talk about the strains that are on the system, one of the right. strains on the system is that is that a lot of people, um, f- you know, a lot of people find it hard to go into work knowing that today, if the sort of incident happens that does happen, their accreditation, their professional status, their whole life as a as a profession will be over. Yeah, if. If the wrong person, if the accident happens to the wrong person, mm-hmm. um, and I and I had a friend actually also who's a, a personal injury lawyer who said the same thing. She got fed oh. up with chasing situations in the health service where actually what was needed was some money to allow this family to look after the damaged person with some comfort. Right, 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 right. Wanted was. Uh, an attachment of blame. Right. 
So what I'm saying is that's another strain on the system. It is. It is. And it's, it's a difficult thing, I think, because especially in a situation where, like you say, catastrophe and trauma kind of come with the day to day. And I think that makes it harder then to spot a pattern. For example, you know, if we were to hold that up against the 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 farmer I lived, yeah. you know, if there was suddenly a sheep dead every day. Yeah. Then you'd be looking around going, well, hang on a second. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but vulnerable people die in hospitals. And of course, these babies are probably among the yeah. most vulnerable because they're not supposed to be out yet you know some of these were celebrating milestones when they were considered full term and they've been in the world for months yes yeah so and of course yeah. you know it's it's wonderful that we can do that but i suppose what we what we need to do in some senses is to say we must accept that some of the things that we can do are still currently marginal yeah and but but I mean, I can't imagine the emotions that are going around in a ward like that. Oh, my goodness. Imagine. Because there was one set of parents where she killed both the kids. So she, they'd had twins prematurely. Yeah. And mm. she did one, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> allegedly, did one and then the other. It, it, I mean, it, that's that's unimaginable. I mean, I um, when I had had when I had Henrietta, I went into the same hospital where I had Lucia some time before. Um, sort of a year and a half before and um, the same midwife came to greet me but she did not seem at all the same she seemed Got extremely it. quiet and, and subdued and um, we then had the quite a straightforward labour um, and the biggest baby they'd ever had born in their unit Gosh. and um, I mean she wasn't she wasn't far off 13 pounds Gosh, she was 12, 14 and a half or something like that. Right? God, I thought your eyes watered. No, not at all, because she was so busy. She did all the work herself. I just, right, fair I just, enough. I just sat at the other end. I mean, she, she pretty well commander crawled out on her own and booked a flat. And a, fair and enough to her, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, and joined LinkedIn. Yeah, you know, I was sort of, But anyway, anyway. I wasn't that way. I, I'd have sat on benefits. I had to be kicked out. <laughs> but I, but, but the point was, when she was born then there was yeah. a bit of a faff because um uh they said the scales were broken twice and then they said the third time this oh, is just a massive baby, <laughs> massive baby. took the placenta away to london university to be investigated uh interestingly in enough. case you've given birth to the hulk or something <laughs> yeah exactly exactly anyway um there was a general atmosphere of hysteria about her arrival i mean i right. was very pleased to see her but but and the midwife said to me uh, in the, the morning, she said, I didn't want to say to you, but we lost a mother and a baby just before you. Yeah. It hardly ever happens. She said, preeclampsia took them both in minutes. Wow. We just could not do anything about it. Yeah. And then you come in and you're like, yes, baby number five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Give us a bun and we'll have this baby delivered, you know, while I eat my bun. Don't think. And she said, A, I was very glad to see you because I thought this is someone who won't be too affected by the atmosphere because she knows the drill. And secondly, um, then you had this enormous baby. Yeah. We're, we're all kind of like cheering this baby. Um, but Because you were like the prize marrow at the county uh, fair, exactly. right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, or the prize pig. Um, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, and... and um, uh, but it was really interesting to see how very emotional the staff were. 
Oh, I can. I mean, that is what I would call a, a physical and emotional burnout job. Yeah. You know, because even if, okay, so you, if you have your support structures in place and you, and you have the backup that you need and you have your healthy environments outside of work, that much trauma yeah. will impact a person. Yeah. Somehow. I actually think also, even when things go well, right, there is such a seething mass of emotions around. Right, when... right. So, I mean, I when I was having um, number one, the people in the ward next door, the individual rooms in the ward next door, she was she was saying, I should never have let you put a finger on me, you stinking pervert. That's my hilarious. Mother, my mother said you should have been arrested. It disgusted. That's hilarious. And, and, and he was crying. Oh. But I love you and I love the baby. And, and the midwife was saying, and the midwife was saying um, uh, to her, it'll be all right. These are your emotions. These are your hormones talking. Yes. And the fact that it's scary and painful and the unknown yeah. and all of that, right? And, and in the meantime, in the meantime, my mother, who was with me, kept making jokes. And I was on a beanbag on the floor and I kept rolling off laughing and knocking the drip out of my arm. When oh, they, my God, my liability. Which was... Which was they actually said to my mother, "Could you do you mind being a little bit less funny?" Yeah, um, uh, which was um, uh, which. So what I'm saying is, the the midwives that were going between us two were seeing two very different sure. sets of things. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And and, mm. So so I'm saying that maybe again, if you were in that atmosphere of heightened emotions all the time. Could you could you notice things that you should otherwise notice? Right. Right. Because how much do you look out for? Because like you say, you know, with the, the poor mother and baby that lost their lives there, preeclampsia took them both in minutes. So you have to be hyper vigilant for all of the things that could potentially go wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been not in this kind of capacity, for goodness sake. I've never been responsible for human life, but I know what it feels like to be spinning so many plates that you are just going to drop one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so medical professions aren't going to be any different. Scarily, yeah. as scary and unthinkable as that might be, and that comes back to my point about trust and then whether we are ever truly safe or not. Yeah. I, the ball I also, just will get dropped at some point. I also wonder whether in this case, talking about a nurse and talking about what she did or didn't do what role does the cliched view of a nurse have in all this is it the case that perhaps it was the unthinkable yeah um and also i mean i was talking to a friend of mine also in the health service and 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 she said um not all not all people who need health service support are nice some oh. patients are absolute bastards. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. So we've got this sort of... Although premature babies probably haven't had the chance to pinch yeah, anyone else or develop yeah, an attitude problem yet. But, but, but so the, the, thought, the thought that I was having was about... So you've got these roles that everyone's supposed to play. Nurses are angels. Yeah. yeah. Doctors know everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, patients, and everyone's going to do their best. Patients are calm and grateful and loving, yeah. And so you've got these, you've got both this world that, I mean, in an ideal world, maybe it would be like that. 
Um, but everything else is operating within that set of stereotypes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think that's what makes this one particularly harrowing is, is again, that position of trust that a nurse gets put in mm. and just the concept that, that that maybe they don't mean well is then so terrifying to look at. It's a bit like yeah. the um, the pilot of MH370, the Malaysian airline yeah. plane that went missing and, and the leading theory is that he took it and then landed it in the sea and, and crashed it or mm. didn't crash it but glided it mm. down. And I think that goes in the same vein because it's so unthinkable. We put so much trust in these people. Yes. So yes. the concept that actually they might just have another agenda that doesn't involve your well-being and there's mm. nothing that you can do about it, yeah. nothing at all that breaks apart that that semblance of safety and control that we build up with these roles, with yeah. these stereotypes. Because if you if you did think of every nurse as being professional and caring, oh, wow, <laughs> what yeah. do you do? <laughs> you know, Who do you go to when the chips are down? Well, but this is this is something this is something about trust in general, isn't it? Because um, we make an assumption that what we buy, for example, to eat, is of a reasonable standard. Sure. We make an assumption that if we do a piece of work, we will get paid. Sure. Uh, we make a whole load of trust-based assumptions because usually that condition is true. Yes. But I, I'm going to put a sort of a, a, put a, put a spin on this. Okay. If we are in the lucky situation where we have lost lots of trust-based assumptions that we can rely on, do we forget that they're trust-based and how lucky we are to be living in a world yes. where, where we can rely on these things? Yes. And do we then start... Um, examining um our lives perhaps through a perspective of unreasonable expectations um partly because a lot of we can take what i'm trying to say is we we can make so many assumptions about our lives because basically in a world like ours trust does work yeah because we got that luxury right in the first world yeah but it doesn't i mean it doesn't i know in lots of third world countries developing mm. countries there isn't a safe transfer system for money for example and if you yeah. can't reliably i mean i know that this is the case with the somali government the Somali, if, if you make a funds transfer into into somalia uh, they decide how much they will let go through or not wow okay um you know and we would say oh that's the work of criminal hackers you know the 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 word is that that's what the government does in some yeah um, whereas here we can be so blase about it that it's just you know face id on your phone and off the money's gone you know yeah. it's like whatever and I, no i think you're right about how we can get into a situation of complacency with those value standards because that's why for example some people feel entitled to abuse nurses yeah because yeah. the perception is that they are just going to carry on caring for you and aren't going to like twat you with a bedpan or something Yes, but also maybe, and and this is you know where I get I get I get uh, upset about what I consider to be the wilder shores of consumerism. <laughs> maybe one of the reasons why we get angry with the nurse is because we're bleeding and she's the only person who can help us, yeah. and we would we would quite like to be able to walk down a, a shopping street and say, oh look, do you know what the minor injury units. At, 
into its top shop is much nicer than the one at Primark. So I'm going to take my minor injury. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that where we've internalized a lot of ideas about consumerism and we think that we are, I mean, the dreadful expression used in, in the in the public sector is service users. Yes. Consumers. Yeah. You know, let's yeah. stick with patients because they're not someone who cho- is choosing to use this service. They're someone who's ill and needs They have to. They have to use the service completely, yeah. completely. So, so maybe that also um, uh, feeds into why people sometimes behave atrociously. But do you think also there's something about um, about getting back to where we started with? How sure do you need to be to put someone in prison? In an I feel like pretty sure, yeah. you know, because that's time is precious and you don't get any of it back. So, so prison sentences will work on a couple of levels, right? So there's a time that the person goes away because either they're dangerous or they need to go and have a little think to themselves so so that's all time they don't get back but also that that reputational thing mm. and the ability for of someone to get back on their feet afterwards and i think it's it's impossible now with all the content that we have about wrongful convictions mm. to look at this and go if they haven't done it and i do that to their life yeah. can i live my life comfortably yeah, yeah. And that gives you a real struggle in a case like this where there isn't the smoking gun. There there are a couple of kids that died there that she's not being charged with because that baby was just so sick and something else went wrong. Yeah. I, I think there is enough that I can say to myself, yeah, I think Lucy Lippy probably is a bit a mm. bit murdery. But I, if I was just given that in court and I and I had to make a, a judgment call on it, I I don't know if I could put my flag in the sand there. I don't know if I could do it. So you would say that you would not be able to say that you were. I don't think I could convict. I don't think I could because there's just there's just that bit too much variance. Now, look, there's a lot there. I mean, she had a nursery in her house. Mm. But then again, that could just make her really weird. Yeah. She had a nursery that that she had a child. Did she have a child in the nursery? Ah, so so she had a nursery, but no child. No child. I, and there was a note saying, I, I did this on purpose. I killed them because I'm not good enough. Right. So I, on a level, I go, I think you've killed the kids. On another level, it's like, but is that just a note of someone who's a shit nurse? Well, yes. Mm. Because people in distress do strange yes. things. You know, she had pictures of her phone of the condolences cards that she'd sent to the families. But then yeah. she had pictures of on her phone of birthday cards that she'd sent people. Yeah. She had notes in her house from some of those children from the hospital. Mm. So that feels to me like a trophy. Yes. There were then other cases, though, of notes being added to later by other hospital staff. Yeah. So for each thing that makes me go, aha, there's another thing that makes me go, hang on, well, okay, so here's... Although another... the big one for me is that she went on holiday and everyone stopped dying and she came back from holiday. And yeah, that's... So I, I think she did. I, I, I think that she did it, but it's it's that reasonable doubt thing where for me there is just enough to make me go... But that's also, that's also circumstantial evidence. Yes. 
rather than actual evidence there isn't we we don't have we we don't have like i say her with a baby and a baseball bat like you know on camera we we don't have it but then there's a question okay and here's another here's a question how weird do you have to be before you become where's the borderline between someone who feels uneasy with themselves and is presenting in a peculiar way are doing i mean i suppose where's find me the line between eccentric and psychopath correct i i don't think she's a psychopath i, I think if lisa levy's a murderer i think she has some kind of other quite complex mental health issue because she has feelings she's demonstrated mm. that on the stand mm. And yeah. the, the court transcripts are out there. I would recommend anyone to go through the material. Her cross-examinations, she's taken the stand as well. Yeah. And she comes across well, she's very articulate. Um, her cross-examinations are fascinating, yeah. but also maddeningly inconclusive. Mm. Um, and I, I've slightly lost my train of thought. Yeah, where, where is that line between kind of eccentric and psychopath? I think probably in the actual murder. You know, because there are, there's another account of her um, being with some of the parents who, who are saying goodbye to a dying child. And she yeah. kind of comes in and goes, all right, you said your goodbyes now, pop them in here. Yeah. And sort of holds out a container. Now that for me, that's that's red flag central. Mm. If I wanted to flip that on its head, I don't really, I think she's a bit of a nutter, but if I wanted to flip that on its head, I could come back to your point about people that are that exposed to trauma, but then where is normal? Where's normal? Because what you experience pushes your boundaries out or sometimes draws them in, but it changes your frame of reference for how to be. And so we're talking about places overworked, full of trauma, exhausted, uh, yeah. And then could someone have just like really, really messed up in their communication with some parents? Now, personally, I think she killed the kid. But again, it's it's that reasonable doubt of actually saying, right, legally, I'm going to say you definitely, absolutely did it. I, and I just don't know if that's there. So, I'm really glad I'm not on the jury. I'm really glad. Yeah. But But also... This is a this is a really interesting thing, and I, I, this is something that that has crossed my mind a bit. Um, in the last sort of, are you going to confess to a murder, Mark? No, I'm not going to confess to murder. But I'm <laughs> going to ask. I'm going to ask. Yeah. But if you were putting a team together for a neonatal unit, right? Right. These days, your nurses are all highly qualified. Yes. And your doctors are all obviously highly qualified. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's nothing on their cvs that would necessarily prove that they were any good talking to somebody whose child has just died correct and actually people that are very highly specialized would tend to go towards the end of the spectrum that might mean they're not yeah yeah if you're if you're a highly intellectual academic person there's another i'm going to come back to your point but i've just remembered something because there's another angle on this as well which is not a romantic involvement, but a close relationship that Lucy had with one of the doctors at the hospital right. in, in the same unit. Mm. Um, and they had a lot of text messages back and forth. And again, that their text exchanges are part of the court transcript. So you can go and access that. That's right. out there. That's public information, not hard to find. And she swears up and down that there was nothing between them. She loved him as a friend. I think it was quite clear that she enjoyed his attention, mm. if nothing else. 
And of course, a way that she could get access to his attention would be by causing an incident. Right, right, yeah. Because then if a baby crashes, he then mm. comes running and there's quite a few exchanges with him praising her for mm. how she's at. Because she clearly could be a good nurse when under pressure, you know, they've got yeah. a couple of them breathing again and whatnot. But I, you know, I've known <laughs> a lot of women. <laughs> and, um, would I necessarily put it past women to do something drastic to get a bloke's attention? Oh. Well, if yeah, the right well, personality disorder is present, I think it's possible. You see, this this puts in this puts in uh, another aspect to a case like this. Yeah, which is the I think completely unrealistic post Me Too. There shall be no flirting in the workplace type thing. Right, which is completely because people just will be attracted to each other, and that's how that goes. Exactly, exactly. You will be, um, and. You know, wherever people are, there'll be attractions or, or yep. the opposite. Yep. And um, that puts another aspect to it. Um, I must admit, I find the I find the nursery in the house almost the most peculiar thing. And I'll tell Bizarre. you why. I'll tell you why. Because um, I've always done this um, when I was expecting a baby. Um, I would not get anything for the baby until I was about seven and a half months pregnant. So because the it's child, a real risky process, right? Because it's a risky process. And when I was little, my mother had lost a baby after me and the drawers full of baby clothes, which she, no couldn't baby. Get, she couldn't get rid of. And sure. there was no baby. And uh, I used to go through them sometimes and my mother used to used to make, make her quite distressed and she used to say what are you doing and, and she called the we'd called the bump Fred before it was born and I said I just like sniffing Fred's things so I used to do this thing that I really enjoyed I can remember doing it holding these lovely baby clothes yeah. yeah, and there would be my mother in floods of tears. Um, because she had no context to know what that meant. I... No, no, no. And my mother wasn't in a position to get rid of the baby clothes. No, she wasn't ready for that. No, and I was the only person small and um insensitive enough to constantly be sure. Um, but that left me, I suppose, and I really just thought about it now. Um, I remember, you know, when I was sort of five months pregnant, uh, people saying to me, have you got your pram yet? And I'm thinking, I haven't got my baby yet, mate. Yeah, I don't need and, the pram until the baby's here, really. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And you also don't, we probably don't need the pram until slightly after the baby's here, because it's not bloody going anywhere, is it? Well, well <laughs> I, yeah, so so I also um, I also thought, which was true, that people would give you so much stuff that actually you don't really need loads of stuff anyway. But it it struck me that to have a nursery and no baby odd would be deeply that, odd. Well, you know, it struck me, you know, when I was expecting a baby, that it would be the most sad thing in the world if you didn't have a baby to put in there. Oh my god! And then how do you come back from that? And you've got to walk past that room, blah blah. Or then you um, then you get yeah. rid of it, or you change it in some way, or whatever. And so. I'd be asking myself, what was the motivation? Had she yes. lost a baby herself? No. So, I, and I could understand it 
because she was single you see so and, and i don't think it had like been tried so one of the notes that they found was this note where she was like i'll never have a family i'll never know that or something like that and i, and I don't know why she thought that maybe because she knew she was going to prison potentially yeah. um I, I could kind of understand it i guess if you were someone who had struggle to get pregnant you were trying to manifest something and like doing the positive thinking thing I could get all of that but I mean you know she wasn't and okay these days you can have a baby by a donor you don't have to be in a serious relationship but the general model is that you meet yeah. someone yeah you have a kid right so um yeah yeah there, yeah there was just a nursery set up in the house and that that's a red flag for me as well I think the, the, but this then slightly um gets me uh, uh this is this is a slightly wider point but she's almost a, in this instance a reproductive incel kind of you know that there's something out there that lots of people have but she feels she's got it in some ways oh so you think it might have been like a, i haven't got a baby so you're not going to have it either well you know that i'm i mean but then i'm then i'm also saying to myself so from that um we, we to some extent have we got a problem because of the way that we say that we describe a fulfilled life as being yes. x yeah and um if you don't have this fulfilled if you don't have this this sort of if you don't have this dramatist persona so you don't have a partner you don't have a child you don't have a parent or whatever so you've got to have this this little cast list and, and then people. you're valid and able to access it, happiness exactly exactly but if you don't have that then you can just be over here yeah exactly exactly yes. you can be in you can be in the cupboard under the stairs sucking your thumb effectively yeah. that's I all. do get that yeah and i i think that's a really potentially a very toxic thing that could have a really bad impact on lots of other people you know, I think you're right. I, I think there's something to what you say, definitely. I think that there is, there's always a biological imperative to it in that yeah. as people, we are kind of programmed to reproduce in a way and that comes to us at different times. I mean, for example, I had zero interest in having a child until I met my current partner. Yeah. Couldn't have sold me a baby. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, well, hey, bring it on. So, yeah. um, you know, there, there's that to it. But I, I do think, yes. And I think that someone that's... So she's in this environment, which is supposed to be very nurturing. Mm. Of course, you have all these families around her all the time. Maybe there's something that on an emotional level she can't quite access. Yeah. She maybe feels alienated by that, polarised by that. Mm. um, and, and then picks a really stupid, destructive way to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely feasible. Because most of the people who are there will be couples. Yeah, majority, vast majority, because that, that's the model, right? Or even people that have split up or something, the, the, you know, the other parent's probably going to come to the hospital. Yes, you know, that's so, right. that's yeah. right. so so you're going to have these units. And so then maybe she feels that she doesn't have that. Maybe that's where the attention of this other doctor, even if she's not particularly emotionally interested in him, but he might... Um, represents something yeah yeah you know might fulfill that space of like there's this attention that i can get she gets praise from him because quite often after a baby would die or, or be attacked then she'd be straight on the text with her friends oh my god this has happened and from the text messages that there is a real tendency with lucy to 
to cast herself at the center of everything mm. and kind of make it about her which makes me think that yeah probably that this is what has gone on um it's also true that she had received training in this this thing that tended to happen so it's interesting what you said earlier about you know how you know we can just expect some children to die mm. premature babies will sometimes just do that that there was a mode of doing things that seemed to be specific around this case with the air embolism where they would get this really weird rash all over them um then they'd desaturate and they'd struggle to breathe and the, and the pulse would go all over the place apart from the ones that were done with insulin and that but that is one of the things again that gives me a bit of a hmm so so yeah, so they, they could tell with something that this air had been introduced to them that gave them this rash. And, and that seems to be very consistent. She'd received training on air embolisms because really, unless they're introduced deliberately or by human error, they don't actually just occur. Right. So you can't say like, oh, baby's got an air embolism. Damn. And and then you, you couldn't like hide that yeah, among yeah. other natural occurrences of this thing. Whereas, you know, this is, it can be introduced by human error. That could happen, but it it has to be done by somebody. So there was that. But then there were another couple of babies that had massive amounts of insulin given to them. Huge, Mm. huge. Mm. And and it's like, oh, yeah, so on this occasion she did that. I'm like, what, she just completely switched everything? Mm. Everything? That's like saying Ted Bundy just one time pulled out a gun. Yeah. You know, so so it doesn't quite go. And then that leaves me with the other terrible thing, which is this, are we ever truly safe? Which is that if Lucy Letby didn't do it or mm. didn't do all of it, there's someone else. Yes, yes. Just roaming around with some insulin. Yeah. Handing out. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean... from. It's terrifying. The thought is terrifying because if it's not her, it's somebody. And if it's not just her, it's two. And then how do we measure our population? I mean, I I think it's... You ask a really interesting question about are we safe? And um, I think the answer is probably no, we never are safe. Um, Some of us think that we know where some of our enemies are. Yeah. But we don't know where all of our enemies are. Right. Um, and I think we can be lulled into, and this is partly because everything works, you know, right? And we live in a world where everything works. We can be lulled into a sense of, um, we can be lulled into a sense of, of, um, assuming that everybody is doing well, right? And, and generally, well acting in a good way and I came across a thing which may turn out to be nothing but which I suspect was bad acting in a piece of work uh, from Gosh. that I encountered Okay, I think that basically person A has told person B what person C wants to do yeah? Yeah. person C does not know that this is what person A has said Wow. and so Person B has made a decision based on the information that they have. Right. Which is actually incomplete. But that wasn't good information. But that wasn't good information. And um, so I'm now I'm now holding this thing about I mean, you know what, this is this is this is a very mild issue, yeah? But sure. it, it 
what it made me think is, I think this, I tell you what it did, it made me slightly think, oh, what can I do about this? Yeah. Um, And it made me think, am I being paranoid? Yes. So I rang somebody who's been in the same business for a very long time, longer than I have. And I rang them and I said the following. And she went, oh. And her, oh, was an absolute. And she said, oh, is that what they said? Well, isn't that funny? Right. And I don't mind working with people that I know are telling lies because I've done it for a long time. No, and there's something about, you know, to quote Jack Sparrow, you can always trust a dishonest man to be dishonest, right? Exactly, so exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> because, and, and, and if you know what they're like, you right. can provide... You just mitigate for that, and you learn to read between people's lines, don't you? But what was interesting about this situation, and it, it's to do with, again, to do with who you think better of or worse of, the person who was under discussion was someone who I would have thought would have told me if he'd said the following things. Got it. Yeah? Okay. So it's a surprise to you, but. So, it's a, um, so the person they're talking about, I should. I should Sorry. Say. Okay. Got it. And, got and it. Got so it. my immediate thought was, oh my God, he signed up to all this without talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought, do you know what? I don't think he has. So I rang him. Yeah. And he said, what the fuck is all this? Yeah. And I went, aha. So, in other words, what I had done in to solve the problem, I had assumed the minimum level of bad acting. Right. So, I'd assumed that person D, or whatever he is in this situation, was doing a small level of bad acting because he wasn't keeping me informed. Right. Not that person A was making up a tissue of lies. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, get it. and so, and so that I think is quite interesting is when you, and, and I think this would certainly be the case when you're talking about somebody who has a role like a nurse, that there is an instinct in all of us to minimise harm. Yeah, because again, because the weight of that allegation, we're all conscious of the weight of that allegation, right? Because it's like, yeah. well, we can't just fucking steam in here and say, did you, did you kill a kid? Yeah. Um, because there's that, but it's, it's to just come back to something that you said as well just now about whether you were being paranoid or not. Yeah. Because I have this look and look, and sometimes we all are just being a bit paranoid. Mm. However, yeah. the times that I've been told that I was just being paranoid the most are the times I've been dead right. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, yeah. So there is an aspect of that kind of slightly gaslighty thing as well, where it's like, yeah, I think that gut instinct does exist for a reason. Yes. Now, of course, there are some uh, contexts in which we can't trust that, like when we're bringing past trauma to a situation, yes. for example, yes. and, and we're just applying something that was true then to something that's now, and that might not be appropriate. Mm. But like that doctor in the ward, I think if you have that real like, oh, I know what this is. Yeah. That then you ought to at least explore it and you, and you can't just sweep it under the rug because that, that message is being it's coming from somewhere in your brain for a reason well yes you see that I was going to say that's very interesting I think one of the things that we don't do is we don't listen to what we can't understand yeah yeah and yeah, so, so it's not it's not even like it's just it's that kind of I don't want to hear this because I can't consider it yeah, because I don't have a mechanism to describe it, 
And I always say about that, my, my reaction to this, because uh, I've had conversations with people, this can, I know, um, you know, shade off into things like the paranormal, but um, my point would be that in 1600, nobody had any idea about electricity. Correct. And that didn't mean that they couldn't see the phenomenon of lightning, for example. Or experience static. Or experience static. But they they could not describe how it worked. So therefore, it was a force they experienced rather than understood. And I think that there are lots of things that happen. Um, I mean, I tell you a, a good example is um, when you meet people of the opposite. No, not necessarily the opposite sex. You meet people who are potentially in your dating pool, so to speak. Right. right? And you meet them, and some of them will immediately give you the shivers. Yeah, the ick. And you go, oh, absolutely not. Yeah? Yep. 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 And I think that one of the most important things that we should do is to listen to that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, was, I was reading a book the other day about... Um, uh, uh, well, it was basically about the state of, of, of interactions between men and women in the modern world. I, I, I get a lot of these books, as you know. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing I like. Yeah. And basically, the, um, the, the, um, the author was saying, if you go to the bedroom of a man you've spoken to in, uh, online, yeah, and all you know about him is that he's interested in strangulation, yeah, you are doing things that your great-grandmother would never have done. Sure. And if that is something that uh, she wouldn't have done it, she may not have done it for reasons of cultural oppression, yeah, but she may also have not done it because it's not necessarily the, the wisest of actions to take. Yeah. And um, so basically... Uh, what she was saying in this, she was saying, let's deploy in all situations on and offline our own instincts. Yeah. It's no yeah. more dangerous if you just pick someone up in a nightclub. It, it, and, it, a, and, a, and a screening process. But, exactly. but well, then again, that only goes so far, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I in the past have had nice encounters with people that I've known for a day. Oh, um, yes. And I've also yeah. been in relationships that have been abusive. So yes. sometimes the person you pick and the person that passes your screening yes. isn't good either. But then the one day thing would be you must have had the opposite of yik. You oh, must yeah. have had the yay. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got the yeah. yay. And and so that's the sort of thing that I think we need to listen to more is our instinctive feelings. We're not always right. We, no. we absolutely get things wrong and... and I mean, I I sometimes think about the fact that I uh, that my own biology probably um, took over from my brain or has done on a number of occasions. Um, yeah, I've been angry with it. Yeah, and and you just think, oh come on, you know, you're yeah. a rational, you're a rational human being, yeah? yeah. So how come this? Um, but but. I do think also that we have lots of 
feelings and instincts, which, I mean, it, by the way, it's not just about sexual stuff. You know, imagine being, imagine being the, that doctor in those circumstances. You just have a feeling. Sure. Yeah. Something's not right here. But then there were lots of people that she didn't give a feeling to. Yeah. There are lots of people that have advocated for this person. Yeah. And said, no, she was great. It was great to have her on the ward. She was very professional. She knew what she was doing. She was nice to be around. And that is something about context, isn't it? What context have you come across this person in? Yes. Because you can't judge an entire human being on one realm. Because like people know me at work as a certain profile type, but they don't know me, know me. No. They haven't seen no. me when I'm stressed out. They weren't there the other night when I had a hormonal outburst and just cried for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But then but then let's say you had, I don't know, a team of twelve people on a ward, and one person had that feeling of dread. Sure. That might just be because that person either has a heightened sense of dread, which could be from past trauma or something, sure. or it could be that they are a person who um, who prioritizes truth over amiability. Or are they the one person paying attention? Yeah. Because a lot of things can pass you by because you're not really paying attention or you're paying attention to something different or you're not on the details. Because I think particularly in a fast-paced environment like a ward, all right, they're they're babies, so it's not like they're running around or anything, but there's still a lot that needs to go on with them. And the general rule is nurse to a baby, right? But you have to, like, you know, you get your friends to cover you on your breaks or whatever it is. There's so much to take your attention. Yeah. That those little details that could give something away could so easily be lost. Mind you, you see, I'm immediately saying I didn't know that's the arrangement that it was one nurse to one baby. In this high risk yeah, situation. Because, it is, yeah. because I would say that in itself isn't the maximum optimum way of managing that. I mean, I'm not a ward manager in that. Uh, uh, well, that's not that's not what they were doing because they didn't have the nurses yeah. for it. But for these at-risk babies, yeah. it's supposed to be one-on-one. Yeah. Lucy, of course, never attacked the kids that she was assigned no. to look no. after. She went and did other people's because she's, um, she, you know, she's a nutter, not an idiot. Yeah. But allegedly. Mm. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's probably not the optimum way, but then I, I don't I don't manage a high-risk well, no, the reason, baby ward, so no, no. for good reason. The, reason. the reason I would say is this: is if you've got if you've got one task and four people, and you divide that task into you know four units of twenty five percent, um, there's a risk that the person who is the least good performer is going to really, really seriously underperform. Whereas if there are ways in which you can work collaboratively. You know, maybe, but then you I might catch that... each other. But then I think with these babies, I think it's because everything has to be so precise, like um, the amount and the regularity of the feeding, mm. because we are talking like micro droplets of and, milk, and and you're also talking about observations needing to... correct and just being able to watch and look at the charts yeah. and the heart rate and the temperatures mm. and like do just so much and probably yeah. quite quickly, yeah. because they can, you know, it can all just mess up in the blink of an eye. Yeah particularly if you're injecting air into them for attention yeah. but i didn't yeah. say that no. <laughs> theory um but yeah uh so 
Yeah, are we ever safe? Don't think we are. Don't think I don't are. I don't think we are. But I think there's a line to be trod. And the line is 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 probably the first I'd say the first step is um I went to Newport on Friday, right? Um Newport, South Wales. And it was all right. It was all right. the, work, the work the work side of it was excellent, really brilliant, so interesting. Um good. Do I like being in a place, a busy place like that? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, not entirely right. because I am scared, but there is some element of me liking to feel in my own familiar surroundings. And okay, got that. Uh, so I suppose what I would say is we are not capable ever of being 100% safe. But what we need to probably no. do is think about the things that make us feel safe. Try to be rational about whether or not they are, um, whether they are real or whether whether we're just making them up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then make our own decisions based on what matters to us. Yes. Yeah, I I think it's about sometimes just accepting the fact that you do have to trust somebody as well, and yeah. that and that you're going to have to get on and do that. And I, and I come back again to to my Voltaire yeah. and Candide, um, and that final line of the book or final concept of the book, which is we must cultivate our garden. Yeah, you know, and, and we have to kind of set things up for ourselves to be good, yeah. and that actually optimism is something that you can create. Yes. By yeah. putting certain things in place so that you safeguard yourself. Yeah. Now, obviously, when you've got a very premature baby, you can't do that. You just yeah. have to accept the help that yeah. is immediately given to you. Yeah. Um. So it's it's slightly different, but yeah, I, I think that's how I mitigate the terror that that concept brings up for me. Yeah. By saying yes. that as an empowered person in the world, you can lay foundations to bring about yeah. positive outcomes for yourself. Yeah. Yes, I think you can, and I think also. Um, Another thing, I mean, I, I've told you about playing the game, you know, the zombie apocalypse game, when you say, who would you have in your team? Yeah. Um, you don't have to constantly play the zombie apocalypse game, but but there's there's something about um, play, paying it forward a bit because yeah. um, I sort of think there is a karma in the universe that if you're quite nice to people, that there's a nice atmosphere around you and, and, and better things happen. But it's also practically sometimes true that if you do if you do a hands turn for somebody, even if you never see them again, you feel confident and you're more aware and you're more observing of what's going on around yes. you. Yes. So it does do good to do good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because I think it's a lot of it that is about the feeling that you leave yourself with, right? Yeah, from having yeah. done that good action, and you have that that positive sensation yeah. in your own consciousness. Yeah, and I would get back to get back to to the this situation in this ward, um, and I would say there's something worrying in a way about a situation where there's so many people who feel so powerless. I mean, if you again. Let's assume there was something to see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not talking about guilt, but I'm saying let's assume there was something. To uh, see. And on occasions there were. Pe people yeah. observed things that were didn't ring right for them. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if the question is really why weren't more people saying and doing more, yeah? Yeah. One of the things might be a general pervasive powerlessness. Yes, I, I think that's true. Because I think that's true. I, I think also, like like you say, that the, the unthinkableness of it, because a lot of um, these text messages with their friends and things, it's like, oh, you're having such a bad run of it. Yeah. And that is where your mind would go if you've been on training courses yeah. with these people, you've been in this workplace with these people. You know, I've never walked through an office and thought, but he's a murderer. Yeah. You know, you just kind of don't, right? No. About the people in your immediate no. sphere. And, and I think there's also this assumption because the majority of people will have gone into that workplace out of a desire to do good. Yeah. I think there, there can be a general assumption that everyone else has done that for the same reason. I mean, it's interesting, she said, as a writer of detective fiction, um, I think that most people uh, commit murders because they're at the end of their rope in some way or another. Um, unless you're talking about somebody who has a form of psychopathy. But um, those are edge cases. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think psychopaths are, what, 2% of people that commit murder? Yeah, exactly. most psychopaths aren't killers, and most killers aren't psychopaths. That's just how that goes. It's... Exactly, exactly. And my yeah. my detective says in the new in the new novel, he's talking to a character who is um, very much at the end of her rope, and she right. sa- he says, "Listen, you may think you're coping with this at the moment, but you are clearly at the edge of your rope." Yeah, yeah. And can I just tell you that this is my working day is dealing yeah. with people at the end of their rope. You need to make some decisions that get you back from that position of of being out of options. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and I think I think if you had so many people around who were so powerless, um, because if you think about it, you know, you're a, let's say you're the ward manager, and you know you haven't got any extra nurses to play with. Yes. You know. And, and as someone working on that ward as well, you are in an environment where by the nature of the work, you are always being reactive and rarely proactive. Yeah. Because you're not going to treat someone for a heart attack before they've had it. No, no, you're not. Well, you're... I, obviously, there are preventive yeah, medicines. Yeah. That's not what I mean. But, you, you know, yeah, yeah. the actual demonstrative act of caring is in response to something. Yeah. Baby is hungry, so you feed it. Yeah. You don't feed it so it doesn't get hungry yeah, because yeah. Then that's going to kill the baby. So, you know, so most people are running around being reactive. And I think that that does kind of bring about not exactly a powerlessness, because that's not what I mean. And it's not that these were people without their own agency, but I think that they are people that are conditioned and used to responding to situations as opposed to proactively analysing. Yes. To say, what am I yes. going to do? to mitigate that thing because a there isn't time but also that's just the nature of it right so you're like if you've got three babies that are laying there sleeping and you've got one that's having an issue you're not going to be like oh what am I going to do for those three next yeah you're dealing with that thing yes another point though and this is this is now going to be a very radical and probably a disputable point here we go okay so (laughs) if you don't believe in heaven right what the hell are you doing working in the health service? You know, you, you're doing a job that is incredibly emotionally stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Does not pay you a lot. No. And exhausts you. Now, I'm not saying there are not some 
people incredibly selfless who would do that without the inducement of of um life everlasting but what i'm saying is if you have a moral framework where self-sacrifice is required yeah um and admired yeah, yeah. I mean, i'm thinking of i'm thinking of a story one of my brothers was a teacher in uh, um, a kind of stockbroker belt just outside London uh, some years ago. And um, he, the kids in his class would never listen to what he said. And he right. was getting quite cross. He was young. And <laughs> um, he actually asked them, why do, you don't listen, why do you never listen to anything that I say? And one of them said, because we can't imagine you're supposed to have a degree. What are you doing here um, looking after us? when my father secretary earns half or twice what you earn oh well and uh he said well because it's the right thing to do yes yeah yeah and then and then went home and felt very very sad demoralized sure. so so my point is we have we love the health service and we all clap for the health service and we all you know we just celebrated 75 years yeah that's a quasi religious feeling about the health service but i wonder if it's enough to make people to make people do what they should be doing i'm not saying that everybody needs to have a religious vocation to do something caring but I, I'm just saying I think it would help. Um, and if not, do the only people that go in for those sort of jobs, are they people with a sort of saviour complex? And if, if that's the case, maybe this is where you get the reverse side of it as well. I think so. So so a couple of things there for me, um, which is that, that, that it's not even an argument you've made, is it? It's, it's kind of a, some scene setting and some questions all good ones i think it relies a little bit on the idea that christian morality or catholic morality is the only kind that works and i think in this multicultural society we just can't take that to be the case i wouldn't necessarily i would i would i would back a sikh i would right. back, yeah uh, uh, i'm just i've never met a sikh that wasn't absolutely golden by the way exactly delightful exactly. yeah absolutely um, uh, as golden as their temple and yeah. my, <laughs> but no my my point would be um i what my point is without a philosophical framework sure okay some kind so yeah. so morality and ethics so without a guiding principle wherever you get that from yeah so yeah. that could be gandalf the white yeah exactly it could yeah, be whoever could okay be that's fine um i'm fine with that i i think that i think that there do exist people who will do things just because it's the right thing and yeah. i think that because i am one yeah and I really do believe that, that right is right and, and and you should do it and look after people now. It was also true that I became a project manager in tech and coined in rather than becoming a nurse. So yeah. maybe I'm not <laughs> um, qualified to talk on that point. But yeah, so it's interesting what you say as well about the reverse yeah. of that. And it's definitely true. Well, we know it's true from crime stats that people who intend to do harm are drawn to positions where they have power. Yeah. So that might be police, lawyers. But the medical profession is one. Yeah. Because you are put, and also I think for a woman, so it, what we haven't gone to yet 
is the perception of um, male killers versus female. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we, I mean, we do have a, a very interesting thing there. That if you think for, for a woman, and as women, lots of people will get cross about me saying this, but we're just generally not as physically strong. No, we're not. We're not. No, you'll get an outlier that is. You'll, you'll get an outlier woman that could batter a man, but 97% yeah. of us just can't, okay? Yeah. Because yeah. we're little. So, so she's really put herself, allegedly, mm. in a position where there's zero risk to the mm. perpetrator. Yeah. Because, you know, for a lot of violent crime or murder or whatever, you've got to get up close and personal with another person yes. and do something. Yes. But when that person weighs two pounds, yes. they're not going to do anything, are they? And they can't talk about it if they survive. So, mm. whatever. So there is that aspect, I think, of that risk mitigation as well on the part of her if she's done that. But but there's also something about what we assume, and and it's um, it's really interesting uh, who we assume to do the caretaking roles. Yeah, and um, this is partly why I come back to my business about structure because um, I remember talking to. A woman, I won't give you the names, but uh, a woman who's who was looking after her mother, who was who was very poorly, right. And um, as one of the least glamorous aspects of that kind of thing is, there's a lot of laundry, of course. And um, the woman uh, had a neighbour come across to her and say, "Look, tell you what, I'm going to wash the sheets for you. What what right. do you say?" Give me your mother's laundry three times a week. I'll, I'll get it done. Yeah. And this woman said to me, I refused. And oh. I said, all right, okay, that's interesting. Why? And she said, because she didn't do it for me. She did it for her Jesus. I can understand that. Uh, uh, yeah. And I said, yeah, okay, I can appreciate that. But did you also not want the sheets washed? Well, you know, I, so I can see both. I can see yeah. And, and, here. And, and and so and so what I'm saying I suppose is if you are if you have a if you have a world that puts caring roles on a pedestal yeah um that's at the same time helpful in the sense that it may encourage the tired nurse who's got another shift to do tomorrow etc cetera, etc cetera, to carry on going yeah, yeah. um and uh we all know how incredibly life-changing those, you know, that those moments can be where somebody feels, I can't go on and then I've got to go on and you kind of, you get you get through the wall. Yeah, so, you, yeah, yeah. So there's that. But, but the other thing is, is does it set a kind of unreasonable set of expectations? Um, and you might not be able to fulfil them. I, I think, oh, it's difficult because so... I guess it depends on whether you want to prioritise the reason for doing something or the result. Okay. So for you, it's like the result is that the laundry gets done. So fuck why they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the sheets are going to get clean. But yeah. I also can identify with that other point of view in that I have seen people display behaviour mostly so that they can then virtue signal Oh yes, yes, yes. Their worthiness and yeah. the reason that they've done yeah. it, yeah. and kind of hold themselves up as some kind of pride. When actually, they're, they're maybe not that groovy. And and here's the thing. So for me, 
if you're doing it for your Jesus and not yeah. just because it's the right thing to do, I yeah. don't think you're being very Christ-like. Well, it, except, yes. Except but then does it matter if they've done the right thing? Exactly, does it, if they exactly. do the right thing, does it matter why? And then yeah. we get into a whole different pickle. We, we do. But I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I, I tend to, I've got a, a, a real interest in, um, in good done by stealth, right? Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it would almost be my specialist subject on my. Uh -huh. And um, I think of a few people that I know who are very, very good at telling everyone how good they are. Yeah. And who I've never bumped into in the places where the broken people are. Correct. Because they tend not to be there because it's Correct. confusing and difficult. So, so I knew people who shall remain nameless. Mm -hmm. Um who were intent on taking in some Ukrainian refugees yeah. and that didn't happen mm. but then the space that the Ukrainians would have taken up was not offered to someone no. in need mm. otherwise yeah, 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 because yeah. that's not trendy right <laughs> well yes I mean you know what have you got you've got you've got good job nice house two holidays a year the next the next thing you need is Ukrainians right they become a sort of consumer good. They, they kind of were a bit of a handbag for this country for a bit. They were. Which they I were. felt was, but then again, then again, does it matter why they were housed? As long if as they, they were, housed. were. As long as they were housed. Right? So then yeah. I, so if by decrying, they're like, oh, you're only doing that to virtue signal, but they did it. So am I just being a massive arsehole? I mean, the ideal thing is good done by stealth. But right. but if I was a Ukrainian, um, I would rather have somewhere to live, even if I thought yeah. the person was a bit of a virtue signal knob. Oh yeah, exactly. Because why does that matter? Because they've arrived at kind of doing a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that I'm annoyed by that is more a reflection on myself, to be quite honest. But you know what, though, you know what, though, the whole Ukrainian thing reveals, and it's it, it is. Um, to do with to do with why you why we do good and and, and and so on a relatively young woman with two small children is an image of a victim that we can all get on board with yes a young man of 20 who right. would have been um conscripted into the afghan army does not look at all like what we think a victim looks like. Know, young men of 20 terrify people. And that's why oh. we're having all this nonsense about the boats of immigrants who are coming over to destroy us. They're really not. Yeah. But, no one's but coming my, to destroy but, us. But, but my point is we have a... It, it was easier for people to get very excited about the thought about having a nice person probably... Sure. But it's, it's that thing again about white women being like the most dead if they get yeah. murdered. You know, a murdered yeah, yeah. white woman is then just a, a national symbol. Yeah. I um, also, and that's I also, not extended to others. I also feel if I'm if I'm brutally frank, um, I think that Britain as a, a society has got since the war increasingly hypocritical about servants, right? Me, when I've got any spare money, I pay people to do the shit I hate. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and um. I think one of the things, the sort of subtext about the Ukrainians was this. We'll, we, in our six-bedroom house, yeah, and two good incomes, we'll take in Ludmilla 
And she'd have to be a real cat if she doesn't throw the hoover around the place. Right, 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 right. But at the same time, we can go to a dinner party and say, oh, my God, no, I haven't got any staff. Right. I wouldn't Which have... is weird, isn't it, if you're just paying people because the service is there to be taken off if you want it. I mean, I'll be buying a house next year and I don't ever intend to clean the bloody thing myself. Well, I had I had a thing with one of the many things about um, differences between my ex and I is that um, if I was earning and wanted to spend money on someone to clean the house, I felt I was entitled to do so. Correct. And when he said no, I said service the fucking car. Yeah. And he said no, because he couldn't and didn't, right? So I'm saying, well, hang on a minute. What's the difference? These are both tasks that we need doing. I shouldn't have sworn there. Um, but We've done that a few times. I wouldn't worry. I can just put the explicit sign on it. It's fine. Right. Um, but um, I couldn't see the difference between while you are earning X, paying somebody some money to do some of the jobs that you can't otherwise do, I don't feel there's any virtue in it, um, but uh, 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 but so I do think there was something in that great let's get a Ukrainian uh, because it was an absolutely um, virtuous way to get yourself somebody to do some of the jobs you didn't want to do yourself. Well, I mean, quite possibly. That was that's just a, that's just a cynical quite possibly. Thing. Although I do, you know, because I do. It, it did bring up some questions for me about the fact that we didn't have all these rooms available for people that are just homeless here already. Oh, I think, I think that, well, homelessness now, here's an interesting subject. Here's you know a I mean, veterans and that. Yeah. Um, partly, partly we um, have a problem. I'm, I'm going to say this, maybe not. I don't think anyone should have two houses until everyone's got one. And I know that's a radical thing to say. It's a radical thing to say. So um, I'm going to agree and disagree with you. Is that all right? Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, right? So I, I, I get conflicted with myself about this because I think that under capitalism, I think that people should be allowed to do with their own money what they want. Yeah, yeah. I so I, I, I feel that limiting how many houses we can buy is, is a form of control that I'm not much a fan of. But... Yeah, I am also not a fan of the amount of empty spaces, like commercially, yeah. corporate spaces that goes yeah. on. You know, we have a work from home thing going on. There's lots of lots of spaces that are sitting empty, not yeah. doing anything at all, that could just be opened up to house people. And I think that social housing should be a way more funded and supported endeavour because in this country there is no need for anyone to sleep outside unless they directly want to. No, I, I absolutely agree. And what was very interesting was during COVID, when they did everybody in, they got everybody in. Right. They really did. Funny that, how it can just happen. Yeah. And one of the things that's close to my own heart, um, certainly around here, and I know lots of other places did as well, the usual model with domestic violence is that women and children are removed from the home while he lounges around in a four-bedroom house watching Netflix. Right. During COVID, um, the thing was reversed. Right. So the women and children stay in the house and the abuser was taken out. Yeah, because if you're punchy, get, get gone. Yeah. Bye. And, of course, as a housing measure, it means the units of people that you have to house 
is much reduced, right? Much reduced. Yeah. Plus, the victim then remains uh, in a place where she's got a support network. Correct. As and then it has her familiar stuff because she's already. Well, we're saying she, aren't we? Yeah. They. They. Could be, no, either way, they. Could be, absolutely, could be they. Are already damaged enough without having been taken out of that supportive environment. But I do, I do to bring it back, like, totally, totally agree with you that there is no need for homelessness in the first world. And that, that is a problem that we can solve. And so maybe it should be that no one should be allowed to have two houses, but maybe if you do have two or if you're buying up endless properties for Airbnbs yeah. and driving up prices in an area, maybe you should have a look at whether there's another way you can make that money because seriously, do you need to? Or maybe maybe you should say for every two Airbnb houses you own, you have to build one for local needs and give it away. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe if we made our affordable housing actually affordable. I mean, there's a wild, wild concept, right? Yeah. Because the Help to Buy scheme did nothing but put a massive premium on new build houses. I mean, I don't know about your area, but around here, a perfectly ordinary, actually borderline pokey, two bedroom, two up, two down terrace house is like 290,000, over a quarter of a million quid in a a, a system where what's the average wage? 25 grand? Yes. That's just not going to work. That's just not a model that's going to work. And you get people going, oh, well, back in my day, we just grafted and we just did this. It's like, yeah, houses cost 10 grand. And it was like, four times the annual income whereas now it's like over 10 times the annual income i mean uh, do people really not appreciate the situation that people are in and the other thing the other thing that happens around here is almost it's almost a mirror image of that is that um if you um if you call it an affordable house it has to be very very small which is what you said but then they put a local needs restriction on it and what that means is that nobody will lend money on a mortgage. So the right. only people who can buy affordable houses around cash here buyers. are cash buyers. For fuck's sake. Which is not the people that need affordable housing. Exactly. Because if you just have a quarter of a million pounds in cash, you do not need assistance so, to get and, on and, the property ladder. And what happens, what happens is there's a really horrid class part of this. Um so, in order to get planning permission, the house has to be affordable, right? And for that, it has to be really small. So, if you can hang a a, a, a coat hanger sideways in the wardrobe, it's not. But it's not an affordable house yeah. anymore, yeah. So, then who's making the decisions? And I had some horrible conversations with people uh, uh, um, who basically said. Um, working class people don't need houses bigger than this. Big pardon, hon? What are they going to do with it? You know, if you give them a bath, they'll keep coal in it. That was the there is literally no way to make people happy. It really grinds my gears, right? So, because people can't win anywhere. So they say, oh, yeah, working class people don't need a house bigger than that. But then if couples choose not to have a baby, they take so much stick for not having kids. Yeah. But then people that have kids and they don't have room for them, take stick for yeah. that and it's like where do you say what do you just like oh also oh, so you you're not massively high owners so i guess you just can't have a family yeah like what yeah. is that yeah, yeah exactly i mean um so so i i mean i can think of a couple of cases where um somebody said i want a third bedroom because i've got a parent who is not in particularly good health 
Yeah. This is a, this is a normal occurrence that goes on, right? We might all at some point be in a position that we need to house a parent. That's just how yeah. that goes. And um, there was a great sucking of teeth, and 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 I was very glad that we had on um, on our planning committee we had half a dozen um, farmers who'd become councillors because their sons just quarrelled with them if they stayed at home. So right. and these and these old boys, they used to say, "Seems sense to me." Of course, like that. yeah. Oh yeah, no, her mum's not well at all. Give them a third bedroom, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Because what else are you supposed to do with the mother? And then people are like, well, kids now, they just put their parents in old folks. I'm just like, yeah, because you won't give them yeah. a third bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. But um, it was just, it was just, a, so so we've got the thing about everyone says, oh, we don't want a whole load of houses built in this beautiful countryside. Yeah. Especially us who just bought a stone farmhouse for 800,000. Well, this is my other problem with that is that people who say that kind of thing, it's like, so, so do you think that your four bedrooms attached emerged on the seventh day or did yeah, God yeah. make it on the sixth? Yeah, yeah. Because all of you all are infill. Yeah. In some way, right? Yes. Everyone's house got built at some point and exactly. we keep producing humans. Yes. Therefore. Yes. And quite rightly, people want to have, I mean, I mean, this is interesting because it came up in a work context a, not, a while ago. Uh, somebody said, right, and we need to find X number of, of people uh, who uh, to take part in a piece of research work who um, who live in flats. Right. And I said, yeah, there aren't any around here. You yeah. live you live at home um, until you get married. Yeah. And there was a, this guy was like, oh, and I said, okay. Yeah, this happens in most parts of the world. We're lucky yeah. enough in, in, in some places, we're lucky enough to allow us to pattern our lives in different ways. But it's yeah. true to say that if you've got mum, dad, three children between the ages of 19 and 25, if they all want a house of their own, you suddenly need four houses instead of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got like four deposits to then pay out. And yeah. then that has all sorts of ramifications for what happens. Then. And I don't, I think that, um, you know, and that, that has implications then for the rental market, which in the UK is vastly different to what it is in Europe, where renting yeah. is actually incredibly normalised. Yes. And much more affordable. And people do it massively long term. You know, for example, I think it's Germany where the norm is that a rental apartment or house won't come with a kitchen because the assumption is you'll put your own in because the assumption is that you're going to stay there yeah, 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 for yeah. a long ass time renting. Yeah. Whereas here yeah. it's seen as something that that's sort of a dirty thing that you do well, until... You can buy your own place. Yes. Which, well, wouldn't it be nice? Again, we talk about freedom. We often talk about freedom. Wouldn't it be nice yeah. if you had the choice to be able to live in a way that you wanted in a place? That oh, you yeah. Because there's just so many variables. Because obviously, we'd be looking at buying a house at some point in the future. We were kind of trying to work it out the other day and realised that, you know, between two step kids and plans for another one we're gonna need a yeah. bedroom house yes. <laughs> in order to have all the home offices that we need unless i'm gonna keep one of them in a cupboard which it might come to well that's another thing everyone's talked about home working and they and quite rightly you talked about how what that's meant on the corporate side yeah in terms of all those offices that are now no longer used yes but in terms of home offices if you've got two people who are both working from home you have to have um, 
you know, it's basically, I think it's changed the housing yeah. ladder completely. It has. It has. And what people require, I mean, the way that I've got around it in my mind is probably thinking like decent three bedroom house and then a garden office. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a good um, idea. You know, it could be a thing. I, obviously, I, I live in quite a privileged sphere to even be able to consider this. It's outside yeah. of what a lot of people can think about and consider. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, housing is an interesting one, and I do think. I, but then I think there were there's always been more that we could do with those corporate spaces because as much as people all used to go in the office, I've always worked in buildings where there are huge swathes of the space that are not used all the yeah. time, and then you'd go home in the dark and you see it all lit up and you come yeah. back in the dark particularly in the winter and you'd see it all lit up, yeah. and and that's never been a good use of space yeah. or energy. I must admit, I I quite like the idea of the way you sort of live in, in somewhere like, I don't know, 18th century or 19th century Paris, where you've got a nice shop on the ground floor, then you've got quite a posh apartment in the middle, yeah. and then up a couple of flights of stairs, there's Madame, who used to be a teacher and is now retired, and up at the very top, there's a place for some people without very much money. Or you've got a writer or something. And I think that's a nice model for living. Now, if we take that, so so in my head, there's a distinction between a flat and an apartment, right? Yeah. Whereas I consider apartments to be like roomier and you've still yeah. got your space. And I think as long as you've got enough space, then, then whether you're on the ground or on the first floor or on the second floor isn't really much of a thing because it's no. just about how well you can live your life. What we've done in this country, particularly in the commercialization of accommodation, mm. is create the flat, which is a space the size of my iPhone that has yes. a kitchen and a bedroom in it and yes. is just a mechanism for depression. Yes. Because I remember going to see my cousin who bought, he actually bought it on shared ownership, which I consider to be a mistake. I haven't said that to his face, yeah. but I've kind of said it to him now. Yeah. Um, and he bought this flat on shared ownership. And I walked in and I just thought, this is the manifestation of ill mental health. Yeah. Because it was pokey corridors, small rooms, everything shut off by these big, heavy doors that just yeah. limited space. And OK, it had everything in it and that you could wash, you could go to sleep, you could watch TV. And you, there was a kitchen there. But it was just in such this little compact area. Yeah, where it really was the embodiment of a cage as opposed to a living space. Yeah, and I think that's that's the great distinction there in terms of quality of life. And for this, he was still, you know, the full rate on the apartment would have been a quarter of a million quid. Again, it's yeah. like why justify yeah. that to me in some way? Whereas if you've got, like you say, big apartment with some whacking great big high ceilings and a lovely fireplace and you've got all the space for your stuff and you can look out over Paris. I'm like, yeah, charge me, whatever. It sounds lovely. I, I can talk to Madame de Cigar on the top floor or whatever yeah, on the stairs exactly, and we can have a good time. Exactly. But, you know, these little pokey flats are not the same. No, but that that's also, I'm talking about creating a virtual community is yes. what I'm talking about. Yeah. And um, I... Uh, I just, having said that about a description of a nice apartment, really, I'm sort of a minimum of an acre. Yeah, that's that's and and that's and that's why well, that's what you're used to as well. But then you've got you've got a fucking cellar or a scullery that's still got an anti witch sign carved yeah, into I, it. So you're not I, living the way the rest no, of us are living. Okay, but, but, <laughs> but it's interesting because. Um, 
it's interesting what makes people comfortable or not what makes them not comfortable. yeah and um you know we all know that that greenness access to green spaces is something that makes people feel very comfortable absolutely and, and i'm in the middle of a you know my my no mo may um crashed into being jungle june and right. you know we're still um um because i still I need a oh, but that's good hours. though because the bees need it. We've got oh, well, to prioritize exactly. the bees. Yeah. So I went. So when I was trying to sort out this kind of who's doing what about this strange conversation that does not contain the entire truth at work, right. yeah, <laughs> I went outside into the garden, uh, partly to get good phone signal, but partly because the whole garden is alive with butterflies. Gorgeous. And I found so myself nice. thinking, actually, you know what? What if so and so has told a pack of lies? Is it life threatening? It's annoying because it, it gives you that perspective. It's like, yeah. do I now care? Yeah. And it's the same from here. So I mean, I don't have an acre of my own land, but I am on a farm, and I do mm. have. I've got the most amazing things to tell you about before we close. By the way, yeah, I, I and I've got access to the entirety of the North Downs Way and a yeah. bunch of forests. And I frequently do the same thing where I'll be in a meeting, be so wound up and be ready yeah. to call everyone a, a bad word. Yeah. And then I just grab the dog and get out into the woods and then a sheep bars at me and I'm like, I think it's fine. Yes. It's oh, fine. I must tell you, I must tell you, speaking of the sheep buying. Yeah. Um, of course, we've got one of those local Facebook groups and um, somebody who's staying on a caravan site nearby put on why are those sheep crying? It makes me so sad. No, no, stop. And and the chap whose sheep they were said, I have had them in to be sheared. It costs me to shear them. It's a welfare thing. They would become really ill and full of maggots and things if I don't. Um, and she's going, yeah, but it still makes me so sad. They're just making a noise, bro. Yeah, and you and, making your noise makes everyone else sad, but he. Uh, yeah, exactly. Are. But anyway, that's my. So go on, tell me what you were going to tell me. Oh my god! Oh my god! So yeah, so it's probably giving away too much personal detail now, but I live on the Pilgrim's Way. Yeah. Okay, so the the ancient route, Chaucer's route, where he wrote the Canterbury Tales, Excellent. from London to Canterbury, I'm on it, yeah. and I've never seen a site like this before. I don't know if I shall see it again, yeah. and I'm so glad that I did. So um, the Pilgrim's Way now is partly on a road. Right. Um, there are more and more of us driving on it that brings its own problems but I was in my little car pop 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 down the pilgrim's way yeah. and whoa blow my life if there weren't 200 catholics on pilgrimage excellent, excellent. In the they had their crucifixes on the sticks they had their ave maria banners it was yeah. raining so hard there were so many priests I've never seen so many frock coats just in one go walking along they were super smiley I, I wound my window down I was like who are you yeah because uh, I was fascinated like what are you doing because they were just all in the road I had to stop for ages to let them by it was so nice they all said thank you and the girl started, I was like who are you the girl stopped and went oh we're just Catholics I said don't say that she went no no we're Catholics so we're walking to Canterbury <laughs> I said well I hope it goes well and she said I'd say a prayer for you um and I said thanks it was very, very nice. Yeah, it was good to see them. And I was really, I, I think it's lovely that people are still doing that kind of thing just out of faith. They were all ages. There was every race represented there, um, just walking along together. And, and it was beautiful. It was really emotive. And I was so happy to see them. It, it's funny. It's funny. I was, um, I was 
talking about this the other day because I was talking about pilgrimage, funny enough. Um, uh, there's a place in North Wales called Holywell, right? Which was not taken down at the time of the Reformation, right? Because the because the shrine itself had been built by Henry VIII's grandmother. Bloody hell! And she, he was more afraid of her ghost than he was in and. Thomas Cromwell keeps saying, "We've all got a grandma like that, haven't we?" Get that place pulled down, and and he's like going, "Maybe, maybe and she'll come back. Go. I know she'll smack me again." And so it's actually still practicing as a Catholic shrine, yeah, okay. which is which is quite cool. It's still got its gold in that. So some years ago, we went. I suppose Henrietta was about 14, 15, 16. Henrietta Gwen and I joined the parish pilgrimage. We've Lovely. been on a couple. Um, we went to see the bones of St. Teresa of Lisieux in Liverpool, which was quite a surreal event. But we went to Holywell, and um, it was the annual, whatever it was, St. Winifred's Day, whatever it was. So yeah, yeah. Us, it was probably about six or 700 of us all together, right? And um, Henrietta was asked if she wanted to carry the, the parish standard. Lovely. And she was chuffed a bit. Then... There was some sort of Ian Paisleyites standing at the corner of the road saying, you are all damned, you're going to hell. Oh, stop it. And one of the old ladies said, let's just say, let's just sing Arvo Maria at the top of our voices. Brilliant. So they did, right? So Henrietta brilliant. said, Henrietta said, do you know what? It was brilliant to be on pilgrimage. It was even better that some people were protesting against us. She said... Well, I felt so radical because I you... just um I just wonder with things like that as well because all right so maybe you think that maybe you believe that but why do you care? Well, you just have to do right by you, right? Don't worry about everyone well, else. If they want to walk somewhere, see some stuff, let them go. Yes, let them go. Yeah, it's it's but it is funny and and I was going to say to you I I don't know how old your pilgrims were. No, everything. There were teenagers there, there were kids there, there were older people there. Some really smiley, gorgeous, friendly looking. They were, they were lovely. I was really glad to see them. Because there were because two two facts, or two one fact and one story. The average age of a nun in America is now 22. Bloody hell. And if you think about how many old ones there are, that means a lot of young ones have come in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the second thing was... was um, Quite an interesting thing happened when um, uh, the, the the previous pope came to Glasgow, and um, there were um, there was room for a million people, right in 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 the, the the event in Glasgow, and every parish in Scotland was told to ask young people if they wanted to go first. So my friend Rosemary, her parish sent forty young people on a bus, right. Yeah. Well, that's your Catholic to tomorrow, isn't it? That's really who it's all about. Yeah. And, um, you know, her her kids had a good day out, and that's the main thing, yeah. But um, the, the BBC coverage of the event was hilarious because in the run-up to it, they said there'll probably be about 20,000 people who, who turn up, wow. right? I mean, the BBC's and, track record's getting worse by the day, isn't it? And so. then they said, and then they said, and they'll probably be in their 80s. Right. So when there are 890,000 people maximum age 21, yeah, um, 
they then said middle-aged Scottish Catholics turn their back on the Pope. Middle-aged Scottish Catholics turn their back on the Pope. So it was like, you said it would all be old people. Then it was and then it wasn't. People. So you didn't like that either. So you didn't like that either. And 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 so my friend Rosemary was in, was was howling at this. She said, honestly, you know, what could we what could we possibly have done? But but um, oh, but it's I, the same. But I, people always do that. It's the same with how people characterise the audiences at the opera as all being yeah. old people. And it's not. You can see every right. denomination there is going there. It's, but but actually, what was I going to say? What I like about about the whole idea about a pilgrimage or anything similar, in some senses, is is the idea of a bit of a, a bit of a collective activity. Yes. And I heard a very interesting. Don't know if I agree with it, but it's a very interesting theory that what happened at the Reformation was previously the role of religion was to regulate the relationship between individuals okay between you and me yeah and after the reformation it was to regulate the relationship between me and god okay and um this guy very smart historian has come up his theory is that the whole point about having that that, that medieval christianity was very very um collective and that the most important thing was not actually who took the sacrament, but whether or not you'd give the person next door to you the kiss of peace. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, and I think there's something to that. I think there's something about the statement of intent. Yeah. Um, the community aspect and just a drive to, we're just going to go and do this. I'm just going to dedicate myself to that task. To an earlier point that you made, though, re regarding the purpose of religion pre-post, yeah. and, and I think one, probably one of the earliest forms of religion, do you think there's an aspect of it of explaining that which we do not yet have a name for? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think there's also, like there are with lots of things, we all try to put names on things that we can't actually very well describe. Sure, like a duckbill platypus. Exactly, like a duckbill platypus. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes when I have this discussion, uh, which I occasionally do have with with interesting friends who are, um, I would say I often have this discussion with atheists rather than agnostics because agnostics tend to say you do you, yeah, but yeah. but 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 atheists can't let it lie and, and <laughs> atheists don't like it. An atheist is actually just the same as a hardcore Protestant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just exactly, still exactly. can't cope with anyone not yeah, thinking yeah. the same thing. It's yeah. not cool. Yeah, and um. <laughs> And the, the 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 discussion, you know, I was at this time last year talking to a, a very bright and interesting bloke, and he said, um, he said, but how can you believe something that you can't see? And I said, well, look, I know you love your wife; she's upstairs. Go up and get me fifteen grams of love, measured out. Well, sure. And if you can measure. And show me in your hand the love that you have between you and your wife. Yeah, I'll have a discussion about things that can't be measured. In fact, most of the things that we most value can't be measured. Yes, yeah? I hadn't thought about that like that before. Um, but uh, 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 we had had a few drinks, and we and he he and he did say, "Oh, that is a bit of a facer." 
Well, no, it is because then it's like that's like I say I really love my partner. Someone went, well, no, you don't, because I can't see that. Yeah, show me, show, show me, me. Oh. show me. Well, I'd rather not yeah, get, get get in trouble for doing that in public. Yeah. You know what I mean, so um, <laughs> yeah. anyway, Mark, we've been talking for two hours. Yeah, I know. I can't <laughs> believe it, and we didn't even get we didn't didn't even no, get just... to distraction because we... I distracted you with Lucy Letby. Yeah, well, I'm gonna now go and Google this. Um. Hopefully see you very soon. Yes, listen to the Daily Mail podcast about the trial. It's really, really good. It's sympathetic. It's comprehensive. And you'll get what you need from it to understand. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, lovely to talk to you. And, you too. Um, thank you. And thank you to everyone that's listening. Yes, Don't thank you. If you want to get in touch with us. Uh, yes, millingtheair at gmail.com. Um, I'm going to do a Facebook page as well. I think that's on my list for this week. So there will be socials for us coming soon. But, you know, for all the people that have listened, and there are quite a few of you now, thank you so much. And, yeah, join us again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.